0: Hello again everybody, this is Father Jeremiah and today I would like to continue here with our, our little course on contemplation. And today our topic is going to be, what does a contemplation look like? It's an important question. If you remember from our last series, we define contemplation as this silent imageless, non-conceptual encounter or experience or awareness of God. And it's important to, to ask ourselves the question, well, what does this look like in, in life? Or what could this look like even in, in my life? Now, before we attempt to describe what this looks like, it should be mentioned, of course, that really when we're when we're talking about contemplation we're really talking about something that is indescribable and so every attempt here that I'm going to give obviously is is not perfect but we should try to say something about it and there is quite a quite a bit that we can say about it and so i in order to discuss what does contemplation look like i would like to take An example from from daily life, I would like to take a few examples from the scriptures, particularly from the life of Jesus, and then from the lives of the saints to try to give us somewhat a fuller picture of what this could look like. So, what does contemplation look like? Well, let's step back for a moment and take an example from, from daily life. Everybody has some time in their life, what I like to call moments of transcendence, or they could could otherwise be called moments of contemplation. What does that mean? It's a moment in our life or in a situation or an experience where all of a sudden, and this could be for a few seconds, or a few minutes, or maybe even a few hours, where sort of time as we know it appears to stop, right? And when heaven seems to sort of spill out into our daily lives. Let me try to give you just a few examples. Imagine maybe somebody, or imagine yourself, walking on the beach, let's say, at sunset. And you're walking on the beach and you're listening to the sound of the waves and it's it's very soothing and very peaceful and you're watching the sun sort of stretch out upon the horizon and there's just this, this beautiful uh, portrait that's literally right in front of you and as you're walking maybe you're quietly praying or reflecting upon your life or asking God for, for something or just speaking to God from the depths of your very own heart, and all of a sudden in that, in that moment there, in that walk with the Lord, as you see this sunset, everything within you, just maybe for a moment or a few moments, just all of a sudden becomes quiet. And there's just this awareness of God. of of someone much greater than yourself, of someone even much greater than maybe the the problem you're thinking about or or the prayer that that you're addressing, there is all of a sudden this this stillness and and this quiet. Well, that is what I like to refer to as, as a moment of transcendence or a moment of contemplation. And in a very real way, it's what contemplation can look like. There's all of a sudden this this quietness in our mind and in our hearts. Maybe another example to help us would be at the birth of a child you know i was I was blessed to be um, at, at my sister's side as she gave birth to to both of her sons and what an incredible experience I mean, my sister had to have a c-section for both of her pregnancies, and so it was it was quite the process right all of the pain that was involved but then all of a sudden as she's holding her her new baby her new son in her in her arms there is this moment of in some sense silence there's this moment where even the memory of the pain of the childbirth has gone away there is this deep peace this deep joy this deep silence is present that was present to her and that was even present to all of us who were in the room and that beautiful experience lasted almost I would say almost a full hour as we just marveled at this new life that was present to us now in both of those examples what sort of the key uh, point here is none of that was the cause of sort of human manipulation, right? None of these experiences came about because of our own cleverness. They were total gifts given by God, just as what contemplation is. Total gift given by God. I can remember um, an example from my own life. When I was ordained a priest, being at the cathedral that morning, I only slept I think an hour the night before because I was just so excited and it was being at the ordination. I remember being there and I remember watching the Cardinal. I remember seeing his mouth utter the words, the prayers and the consecration. And I remember seeing all the people at the cathedral, seeing my own family, even seeing my own classmates kneeling next to me. But my heart and my mind were somewhere else. There was this tremendous stillness, and silence that was present within me. Because of the experience that I was having of being ordained a priest was so magnificent. It was so much greater than anything I could even articulate or understand in this world. And so these are a few moments, uh, a few experiences of daily life of what I like to call moments of transcendence. And they are, in my opinion, one of the best examples of what we could use to say this is kind of what contemplation looks like. So let's take a few examples from uh, the scriptures. You know, probably the most uh, famous example uh, of contemplation is the example of, or the story of Martha and Mary, right? And we all know that story so well. Jesus goes to the home to visit his friends, Martha, And Mary and Lazarus and it says that as Jesus enters their home, right? Martha is very busy taking care of the the practical concerns and, and the needs of that are now present because Jesus is here and there's a very interesting description of Mary right in Luke 10 verse 39 it says Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary is sitting there with this rapt attention, with this, this deep awareness of the presence of Jesus. She is not speaking. She is not imagining. She is not thinking. She is captivated by the presence of Jesus. What a beautiful, I believe, Uh, icon of what contemplation looks like somebody who is captivated by the presence of jesus right and this you know this uh, in many ways annoys martha right and she complains to jesus and jesus gives her a bit of of a rebuke right he says to her martha martha you are anxious and troubled about many things Right? But it's important to recognize that what Jesus is sort of rebuking here is he's not rebuking her activity. He's not saying this activity is not important. I mean, after all, Martha's activity is meant to be serving Jesus. But what Jesus is rebuking here is activity that is anxious. Activity that is not coming from a place of deep prayer of intimacy with Jesus and as a side note this is this is why one of the gifts of contemplation what it does is it reorients not only our own heart but our own activity it calms it so that when we when it is time to serve we're not serving anxiously but we're serving from a a deeper place And so Jesus is not only defending Mary's contemplative posture, but he says that this contemplative posture of Mary is the one thing needful. In certain translations, it's described as the better part that will not be taken away from her. And again, you know, sometimes we can view this scripture as placing uh, the active of life versus the contemplative life. Well, I feel that's essentially inadequate because Jesus is not placing uh, the apostolate or the works of mercy or just the the demands of daily life versus contemplation. But what he is doing is that Jesus is reminding us that the apostolate, the works of mercy, the, the demands of life, that these things belong to this world only, right? In heaven, nobody will be hungry. Nobody will be sick or homeless. There will be no need for the works of mercy or activity. However, in heaven, all of us will be like Mary, absorbed in the presence of God. And this is why contemplation is the beginning of eternal life a foreshadowing of heaven robert cardinal sarah says that in heaven speech does not exist there on high the blessed communicate with each other without any words there is a great silence of contemplation Communion, and love. Very beautiful that it shows how this contemplation is, in many ways, a foreshadowing of heaven. And the cloud of unknowing, once again, if you remember from last time, this, this great contemplative work from the 14th century known as the cloud of unknowing, he says to us, very important here about Martha and Mary, He says, anyone who wants to become a real contemplative like Mary, let the wonderful transcendence and goodness of God teach you humility rather than the thought of your own sinfulness, for then your humility will be perfect. Attend more to the holy otherness of God rather than to your own misery. Right, and that's essentially what Mary is doing. Right, Mary is not self-absorbed at the feet of Jesus. Her whole self is moving outwards towards Him, totally enraptured by the presence of the Lord. Let's take another look—a uh, quick look at another scripture, and that is the the, the scripture of the Transfiguration. Right, another. Beautiful example of what contemplation looks like. And again, we all know this story, right? Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And almost immediately, we, we should know that uh, a mountain, particularly in Scripture, is always a place of, of deep encounter with God. Right? Moses encounters God at, the, at Mount Sinai. Elijah encounters God at Mount Horeb. And here comes Jesus taking the disciples up the mountain. And as, this, as the gospel tells us, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garment became white as light. And so here we are in this, really this, this magnificent, this grace-filled situation but yet, contemplation, at least for the disciples, has not occurred yet. And how do we know that? Because Peter is talking. Peter is analyzing this situation and trying to figure it out. You know, Peter's response is very human, right? What does he say? Lord, it is well that you are he- that we are here. If you wish, let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one from Elijah. Right? So what Peter is doing is he's drawing a conclusion based from his own mind, from his own experience with the situation. His mind is, is realizing that this experience of the Lord is really powerful. And so what do I want to do? I want to hold on to it. I want to try to understand it. Right. Very normal, very human, and in many ways, very good and very necessary. But then... We go a little deeper the scripture then says a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud says this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to them listen to him and then what happens when the disciples heard this they fell on their faces and were filled with awe And I would say that it's in this moment here where contemplation takes over, right? God has taken the initiative and he he bursts through. Peter is no longer able to try to analyze, to try to figure out, to try to um, strategize how to keep this experience going. When the Father speaks, they fall on their face which is a, almost, in many ways, a classic response, a genuine response to a real deep experience with God. The talking is over, the imagining is over, and the thinking is over. They are just simply on their face before the presence of God. A beautiful example of what contemplation looks like. One more example from the scriptures is the example of the burning bush, right, in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is, in many ways, minding his own business, right? But he comes to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, yet another mountain. And God speaks, he reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. Here is Moses before this bush that was burning, but not consumed. Sort of a a strange paradox. And what does the Lord say to him? Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Right? The place of contemplation, the place of of deep prayer, is a place of holy ground. And it is here in this holy ground where God reveals himself to Moses. Moses. And what does Moses do? Again, another genuine experience to a deep encounter with God. The scripture says, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, right? What was before Moses was something that this is not a creation of Moses's imagination. This is not a creation of his discursive meditation. No, Moses is before the Lord. The Lord is revealing himself in such a powerful way. And Moses, just like the apostles, buries his face because the Holy One is in his presence. The Catechism commenting on on this passage says that faced with God's fascinating and mysterious presence, man discovers his own insignificance. Before the burning bush, Moses takes off his sandals and veils his face in the presence of God's holiness. So once again, Moses, like in all the other examples we are using, did not create this situation God is taking the initiative here this experience of God is beyond the working of Moses' own thinking own imagining or even his own speaking right the only words that Moses utters is when God calls him and Moses says here I am here I am a beautiful description of how we should respond to the Lord, particularly in these times of silence and in these times of deeper prayer. Here I am. So Moses' response reveals that he has encountered the transcendent, that he has encountered one who is so beyond and this encounter that he has with the Lord in contemplation will change Moses for the rest of his life. And so let's take, it, let's take a little bit of a look from the example of, of Jesus here. Right, it's interesting. Jesus begins his ministry, right, after his baptism. What does Jesus do after he's baptized? Does he all of a sudden go into the crowds and begin preaching? Does he all of a sudden start healing and working miracles among the people? Jesus does really the complete opposite. He goes into the desert for 40 days, right? The desert, this place where Israel was unfaithful. Jesus goes to the desert, yes, to be tempted by the devil, but also to be alone, to be silent before the Father. Jesus, right, who tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. You know, a beautiful, a beautiful verse Matthew chapter 6 verse 6 and many of the church fathers and many of the, the fathers of the desert when they comment on this verse of Jesus they they oftentimes talk about how Jesus here is inviting us to a way of prayer that is beyond images that is beyond ideas and thoughts that goes into the very depths of one's heart they're ultimately talking here about contemplation Jesus, who tells us, remember in the Gospel of Matthew, that when we pray, that we are not to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, what's Jesus reminding us here? You know, the Gentiles would oftentimes think that if they would just speak louder or shout louder that God would then hear that. That God was almost sort of like asleep and we had to wake him up with our, our many words and our, and our shouting. Jesus is reminding us who God is. That he is a father. That yes, we, we bring our needs to him. That yes, we intercede for, uh, for other people in the world. But then we leave them at his feet. And we trust that God will answer those prayers as he sees best. Jesus, who, remember, before he chooses the 12 disciples, what does the gospel say that he he does? In the gospel of Luke, it says, Jesus went out to the hills to pray, and all night continued in prayer to God. You know, it's fascinating to ask ourselves, what did that prayer look like? Jesus alone in the wilderness, all night in prayer. Well, I mean, we can only assume that, of course, Jesus spoke to the Father, to his Father. He prayed some of the Psalms. But I would say that most of that time, there was this silent gaze. There was this deep intimacy that was being exchanged between the Father and the Son that was ultimately beyond words, that was ultimately beyond ideas and images. Jesus, who remember in the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector, says that the tax collector who stands in the back of the temple and does not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and says, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. That it is this man, with his few words, but his great openness and great humility, that this is the one who goes home justified. Whereas the Pharisee, the religious one, who comes before God with all of his self-righteousness, all of his arrogance, and all of his many words on why God should love him, he's the one who's made a fool of here. And so what is the the implication from all of this? Well, it is, I believe, that Jesus is pointing us to a way of, of being, to a way of prayer that is more than just vocal prayer, that is more than just saying prayers, that is more than just meditation, that is more than just speaking to God or thinking about God as important and as necessary as that is but that ultimately prayer is this way or this stance of being with god simply being with god and perhaps the most profound way to be with god is in silence in this mutual gaze upon the other So let's take a few examples from the lives of the saints to help sort of flesh this out a little bit. In the Catechism, paragraph uh, 2715, it recounts the story of St. John Vianney, right? And th- the way the story goes is, is one day he's, he's, in his, he's in his parish and he notices that there's this, this peasant, this, this farmer who spends a lot of time in church. And he goes up to this this peasant and he asks him, he says to him, Sir, what is it that you do all day here? And his response to St. John Vianney is so profound. He says to him, I look at him, Jesus, and he looks at me. That's what I do here. I look at him, and he looks at me. What a beautiful description of contemplation. In fact, it is this example of, of contemplation, this, where the catechism in the catechism, it's, it's framed under the um, heading of contemplation. Because I believe it's almost this perfect description of what contemplation looks like. I look at him and he looks at me. There's another story from uh, the lives of the Desert Fathers. And it's the story of Abba Arsenicius. It says that it was said of him, this Abba Arsenicius, that on Saturday evenings, preparing for the glory of Sunday, he would turn his back on the sun and stretch out his hand in prayer towards the heavens, till once again the sun shone on his face. Then he would sit down. Right? Now, this is something I don't recommend for all of us, but, you know, here's this beautiful story of this desert father who is literally spending the whole night in prayer. Right? And what did that look like? Of course, there were prayers being said, right? Words spoken from the depths of his heart. But I would dare to say the majority of that time is spent. In this silent and imageless contemplation. The final story comes from uh, a story that was told to us actually from Father Benedict. Father Benedict Rochelle told us this story when I was a novice about Blessed Solanus Casey and the way this story goes is Father Benedict I think I believe was a, a novice and he was actually at the friary where Solanus Casey was. And Father Benedict said one night he was, he was sick or something was happening and, and he couldn't sleep. And so it was around 2.30 in the morning and Father Benedict woke up and decided to go to the chapel for a little bit. And so he said he walked into the chapel and he turned on the lights and right there in front of the tabernacle was Solanus Casey who was kneeling before the tabernacle with his arms extended out, raised up in prayer. And Father Benedict said when he turned on the light, there wasn't a blink or any sort of sign of recognition from Solanus Casey that he even saw the light being turned on. Father Benedict said he looked at Father Solanas, and Father Solanas was wrapped in this deep prayer and that this turning on the lights, which would, would have probably distracted or disturbed most of us, certainly myself, it didn't even phase Solanus Casey. And Father Benedict said that he just turned on the lights and quietly went back to bed. Right, what a, in my opinion, a beautiful description of what contemplation looks like. But notice again in all of these examples from from these lives here of the saints, there is no thoughts, no thinking, no images, no words, no books, no devotions, no prayers. Why? Because God has in a very real way taken over their prayer. One last thing I think that would be important to consider is what is the primary activity occurring in contemplation? What is the primary activity occurring that we see in the story of Martha and Mary, in the story of the Transfiguration, and in Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush, and in the example of Jesus? The primary activity or the primary focus of contemplation is love, right? Another word for contemplation could be love. But who is the one loving? It is God. God is the one taking the initiative here. In contemplation, we are receiving God's love, which is our way Of loving God back. This sort of the ultimate posture of contemplation is receptivity. We are receiving everything in contemplation. This is why in contemplation in many ways our prayer gets turned off so that God's prayer in us can be turned on. So if you've ever met a a genuine contemplative a genuine holy person, right? What is the characteristic feature? It is love, right? You can see it in their eyes. You can see it in their actions and you can hear it in their words. If you ever hear a contemplative speak, it's oftentimes very simple, very quiet, but you can hear love and what it is they're saying. And you can tell a contemplative by the way they serve. Their actions are oftentimes gentle, humble, unassuming, and quiet. And so, what is happening here beneath the surface of contemplation? Love is being given from God and being received from the person, or being received by the person. This is why love here is the core of contemplation, God loving the soul and the soul loving him in return. Once again, from The Cloud of Unknowing, the author says, for in real charity, one loves God for himself alone above every created thing. And he loves his fellow man because it is God's law. In the contemplative work, God is loved above every creature purely and simply for his own sake. Indeed, the very heart of this contemplative work is nothing else but a naked intent toward God for his own sake. So love is the very core, the very essence of contemplation. And this is... And somewhat an elementary beginning way of what contemplation can look like in our lives. Thank you and God bless.